Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership interview series where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders and I get to ask them about women in leadership. I get to ask about their stories and soak up their wisdom and perspective on life and leadership. And today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Sadna Smiles. So great to have you here, Sadna. Thank you for joining me. Oh, Melissa, thanks for having me. It's very, I feel very honoured to be part of the conversation that you're having with so many amazing women. Brilliant. So let me jump into your bio and then we'll get going with our conversation. So Sardner's the CEO for the Real Estate Industry Partners and prior to this was the CEO for Harcourt's Property Management in Harcourt's Victoria. And she got her first CEO role because she asked for it, which I can't wait to talk about. Um, Sadna's been named Victorian Telstra Businesswoman of the Year and in 2016 was named of one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence in Australia. Sadna's an author, a podcast host and a founder of a not-for-profit providing pap smears to women in remote Fijian islands as it's one of the highest causes for death. She is a voice for change. And we are thrilled to have her join our conversation today. So thank you again. And let me ask the first question, which is for anyone in our audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, who are you as a human being? <laughs> tell us. Tell us all. I love it. Who am I as a human being? Well, I'm probably someone who is, I always say so I'm a, I'm a migrant to start off with. I arrived in this country when I was 16 years old, and that's probably what, um, framed my future life for me through those experiences. I realised at the age of 18 and a half that I needed a visa to stay in Australia and I wasn't, didn't want to go back home because of all the cultural issues that I grew up in. And so I asked a, a white guy to marry me and he said yes, and that's how I got my visa to stay in Australia, which I joke about now thinking, you know, if it was today I'd be in Nauru having the same conversation with everybody given how we treat some of our um, migrants. But and then I um I had a pretty crazy life. You know, I um I traveled a lot, I got a job in real estate, which I fell into, and I was good at it, and really sort of, you know, got into my mid-30s and then uh, started a few businesses. So I did a couple of startups which I failed miserably and I learned a lot of good lessons around those, you know, stick to your strengths. And then I got divorced. And I think it was when I got divorced that I realized that I needed to get very serious about my career, that, you know, being a single mum in in Australia isn't actually that easy. And you need to have finances behind you if you want to have a life for your kids and for yourself. And and it all depends on what your, you know, what sort of life you want to have. And for me, I wanted to be able to travel. I wanted to give my kids certain things. And I I realized my ambitions quite late in my life. I think the divorce really allowed me to focus on myself. And and I realized, found out that I was actually quite an ambitious person. And it was actually okay to be that. Fantastic. And so then I, you know, we'll we'll go into the, the, the business story a bit later. And then, you know, here I am today. Brilliant. So um, let's transition straight across to that business success story. And I'm loving the theme uh, that's coming out here um, around asking for what you want, uh, which I think is so, so important. So let's continue on with that asking for what you want. And um, let's talk about your career and where that played a major role. 
So I had a I had a role with quite a well-known uh, real estate brand in Sydney and we were doing some pretty cool stuff in that brand and so I was being asked to speak about that on the conference circuit. And so I was at a at a conference in Queensland speaking at a Harcourts conference and I got off the stage and the one of the managing directors came up to me and said would love to see you in a Harcourts scarf. At that point in time, I didn't know who she was. And I turned around and said to her, I said, well, give me a job as a CEO and I'll put on the scarf. <laughs> and we all had a bit of a laugh. You know, there were a few people around me and I sort of looked at them and they were like, <gasps> you know, can't believe she said that. And we all had a bit of a laugh. We walked away. And about a week later, the other MD, who was her husband, rang me up in Sydney and said, we'd love to take you out for lunch. And, you know, Long story short, they had a role as a CEO going in Sydney, which I applied for, and there were 75 applicants in that role and uh, for who applied for that role, a handful of women, and I happened to get it. And it was that whole concept of, you know, um, I had never been a CEO before. I wanted to get the role because I truly believed that I could actually make a difference. I had a pretty good CV uh, leading up to getting that job. And I remember coming out of that interview thinking to myself, oh, my God, I think I've totally screwed that up. And then when I got the role, it, it was that, what do I do now? How do I, how do I now make this work? And I think one of the things that I've learned is that you've just got to say yes and trust that if you put the right people around you, then you will be able to deliver. Can I ask, um, did you, I mean, there's a couple of things in there. You you made the comment that you didn't know who the person was at the time. And um, when we first met, you said to me, maybe I wouldn't have asked if I'd known who it is. Do you, do you think that's the case? What you know, and it's funny because it's interesting if you could go back in time, right, and replay it without knowing what we know now. Yes. I have always been a bit cheeky in terms of my responses and how I interact with people. I've got this wicked sense of humour. And I think I probably would have still said something, but I don't know if I would have been that direct. I don't know. You know, um, I was on a high. I'd come off the stage. I was on a high. People were saying, you know, well, well done. That was a great presentation. I think when you're on a high, you get more confident anyway. If I had known who she was, I may have said it in a different way, but I think I probably still would have said something. Yeah, amazing. I think you just nailed it anyway. But when you moved into that CEO role, was it... Was it what you thought it was going to be? Like, do you remember when you first started in the role? Yeah, I do remember. And, and and I had a lot of support from the brand, you know, because they knew that I'd never done the role before. And so I had some great mentors in the brand and we'd put a business plan together around what was it that I needed to do. So I wasn't, you know, put into the role and then provided no support around it. And, and I think that's a critical piece with any business that you go into. You've got to make sure that you've got the right support networks around you. So I had a business plan. I knew what I needed to deliver or do in the first quarter. I had people that I could call and rely on. I had a great managing director in the business. And, you know, we had some great GMs in the business at the time too, who were able to guide and coach us in terms of what needed to be done. The really interesting thing was that one of the questions that I was asked and reflecting on it at the time, I thought it was a strange question, but I thought, I think it's quite relevant. The group at the time was predominantly male. There were hardly any, or I don't think there were any female franchisees. And one of the questions that was asked of me is, how are you going to manage all of these men? Mm -hmm. 
Now, I reflect on that now and I go, was it an appropriate question? And I think at the time it probably was because it was 2011. It was very much a boys club in some aspects it still is, but then it was. I was the first female CEO being appointed in a franchise group to do that job. And given all of that, it probably was the right question to ask. And my answer was, yes, I think I am because I've got the qualifications, the background, the history, the knowledge, the personality to do the job, Mm. you know, and, and I, and I did, and I delivered. And it was, it was an interesting time. As I said, it was a long time ago. And I was, I was the first female CEO appointed in my industry. And I think now looking back on it, Harcourts as a brand was very brave to to do to make that decision and offer me that position. There was another female CEO in one of our opposition brands in Melbourne, but she was part-time. So I was the first full-time CEO. And I was the first woman of colour that yeah. had been appointed in that position, you know. So a brave decision by that brand. Well, brave and smart, right? Because they've put, you've obviously had, you know, continued success from that point onwards. Did you face along the way, you know, I often when I'm talking to um, senior females, I often hear stories through their careers of where they've hit up against some of those sort of gender, um, you know, barriers or um, have you had any of that along your career? Oh, yeah. I don't think there's any woman who can say they haven't. You know, we all have. Yeah. And I think it's how you handle it as well. I, and, again, I think my confidence plays a huge role in how I manage and handle things and I'm not afraid to be quite forward and direct with people. And I know sometimes that that works against me. So, you know, I, people say to me, she's too confident, she's too polarising, she's too direct. Um, but I know that if I was a man with the same attributes, it would be seen very, very differently. To do the job I do, I need to be direct. Absolutely. I don't I don't need to be polarizing and I don't believe that I am, but people, a lot of men perceive it in that way because it's a very male characteristic that I bring to the table. My mentors were all men. You know, for a long time, I learned how to be a CEO from the eyes of a male. And it took me a long time to find my own space to bring the femininity into what I do because I there were no mentors for me who were women, so I didn't learn off them. So many questions to dig into there. The first one I want to dig into with all of those mentors is I often in conversation with people, I think there's a real feedback crisis in, in you know, corporate broadly. And, you know, one of the analogies I often make is athletes are hungry for feedback and they listen and they know that it's the only way to improve. People don't get good feedback, though, and often women don't get good feedback because people soften what they share with them. I just want to—I want your perspective on feedback broadly. How important has it been in your career? When have you known to tune in and listen to it, and when have you known actually I need to follow my own kind of voice or instinct here? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think I've been given a range of feedback from you're really good at your job to really really crap at your job, even when I've delivered, right? So I think I've had the the whole gamut. There've been days when I've gone home and I have been on a high. I had a great, you know, great day and I was noticed and I was given feedback because we all thrive on that. And there are days that I ha- I went back home and I curled up in a corner in a, in a fetal position and just cried because it had been a tough day at the office. What I learned through all of that 
was to put people in my space who I knew who had my back. Mm-hmm. So they weren't people who were going to believe the other story. They were people who were going to listen to both sides of the story and understand that somewhere in the middle lies the truth. Yes. They were people who would support me emotionally. They were people who would support me from the perspective of you did all of these things right, but here are some things that you probably should have done differently or said differently. And I trusted them to actually take that feedback on. So so my advice to people listening to this is you're gonna have you are always gonna have the gamut from one extreme to the other. The important thing is put the right people around you who are gonna pick you up and dust you down, give you a hug or high five you, depending on what you want at that point in time, but they have your back. Mm-hmm. So important. And how did you work out, you know, when you said it took you a long time to bring the femininity into your leadership and your style, tell us how you how you realised you needed to do it and how you did it. Yeah, and it was, it was a, the guy, one of the guys who employed me, his name was Brian Thompson. He is, he's from New Zealand and he at the time was the guy I reported into. And um, when I was with him, I used to be a very different person. You know, I bring all of myself to the table as such, you know, happy, joyful, fun, you know, cheeky, direct, all that sort of stuff. And then when he would see me with my franchisees, he would see a very different Satna because I felt I had to be very different. And he sort of sat down with me one day and he said, they've got to see what I see mm-hmm. because that's the that's who you really are. And I took that on board and I and I was brave enough to bring myself to the table and then I enjoyed and loved the reaction I got back from people and then I thought you know I don't need to wear pants to work every day I don't need to have this Teflon you know jacket with big shoulder pads going into work and so I I sort of changed you know how I dressed and um, as I said I brought a lot of my femininity to the table and the thinking as well you know I think women bring not I think I know women bring a very different perspective around leadership to the table we think differently we feel differently we behave differently and when you talk about diversity it's really really important to have that diversity of thought and behavior around any table because it creates for a much stronger business mm-hmm. and that was that was the journey I had and that was very early in my career as a CEO so how much do we love Brian, firstly? What a gift. Well, he, <laughs> he, he can never hear this podcast because he'll be going, oh, you know, because of me. But I am. I think, you know, I think you've got to, I think you've got to um, appreciate those people who have had that impact on your life and have given you that feedback. And, and Brian and I had a great relationship and we still do. And we thrive on this story today. But if he hadn't said that to me, I probably wouldn't have taken that path that I or I'll probably have taken a lot later that's right potentially so okay and this is fascinating to me because when we first met as well you talked about the fact that you had been a chameleon through much of your life so share that so when I arrived in Australia I had come out of Fiji I was 16 years old I'd never lived away from home I went into boarding school I'd never lived with so many white people ever like, you know, leave alone. I think we had nine girls in the dorm all in bunk beds. So, you know, food, culture, environment, people, language, smells, taste, clothing, you name it, everything was a massive culture shock for me. And it took me months to get my head around it, even though as much as I wanted to leave Fiji and, you know, escape the the cultural stuff and come here, it was still a big culture shock. And one of the things I learned to do very, very quickly was 
to teach myself something new by watching other people. Mm-hmm. So watching them really, really closely and then copying it identically and, and becoming that chameleon where people didn't know that I didn't know how to use six forks, spoons and knives around me around the table or, you know, how to eat pasta with a fork and spoon. I would wait till somebody started, I would watch them and then I would copy them. Yeah. And probably I reflect on that time now and I've done that in my leadership journey as well. I've watched people. I've watched some great leaders in my own industry and outside of my industry. I have observed what they do, how they do it, how they speak, how they share, how they stand, how they dress, everything. And then I've picked the parts that work for me and I've just taken it on, you know. So I didn't go to university, so I don't have a university degree. My learning has been on the streets. I've watched and then I have copied and and made it mine. So what does um, I ask for the best leadership advice that you would give people? And and I love the response around be where your feet are. What does that mean to you? So that advice was given to me by uh, Gilbert Anoka. So he's the mind skill coach of the All Blacks team and, you know, most successful team on the planet as such. But I was very privileged to have worked with Gilbert at Harcourts for a number of years and, you know, we became friends. And one of the things that Gilbert used to say to us was you've got to be present, you've got to be where your feet are. And quite often in leadership when we have uh, a number of things flying at us at any given time, we have to make a number of critical decisions, listening becomes a really uh, probably a skill set that we can get distracted from quite easily because we have all these other distractions happening. And so one of the things I work really, really hard at doing is just being present, being where my feet are. And it doesn't matter whether I'm with my family doing this podcast, you know, talking to a range of people, if I can mentally tell myself to be present in that moment for that person or for that group, I know I'm going to bring the best of myself to the table uh, as opposed to not doing that. And that's not easy. No. It's one of the number one things I hear. People are, I want to be more present, um, you know, across all of their life. How do you do that? Self-awareness. You've got to be aware when you are starting to drift. You've got to be like when I go into meetings and things, if I don't need my phone, I don't take my phone with me. I have my phone off upside down so that I don't, you know, doesn't get distracted. I try and have meetings in environments where I'm not going to get distracted as such. So it's it's actually high levels of self-awareness that when you start to drift or when you start to get distracted, you've actually got to tell yourself, I've got to bring myself back into this. Mm-hmm. You are shifting. You are moving away from this conversation. This person needs your attention and you need to be able to give it to them. You know, leadership is a privilege. We are privileged to be in the positions that we are at. Please, if you're a leader, don't wake up every morning and say, my job is too hard because then you should step down to doing something else. It is an absolute privilege to be where we are. And for that, we have to make sure that we give ourselves to the people that we lead when they need it. I love that. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. 
You are very intentional by nature and, you know, you shared with me around doing a strategic plan for yourself every year. Can you talk about that? How long have you been doing that for? Oh, look, I've been doing it for years and years and years, you know, 20 plus years. And I can go back to when I first started and I've got those pieces of paper still filed away somewhere in my house. But I heard I heard someone talk about it at a conference and I thought, well, yeah, that sounds great. If he does it, I'll do it. You know, it's a whole thing. When you go to a conference, you get motivated, you write all these notes, you come back and then your drawer becomes the smartest place in the office because you yeah. don't follow through, yeah. right? Yes. So I always say to people, even if you just follow through on one thing and that makes a difference to you, at least you've done that. And so I did. So I started to write them down and then I we, we had a ritual with a girlfriend. We'd go out before Christmas, have a few wines, write it down. And I'd print mine up and laminate it and put it on my shower wall. And the reason why I did that was because it just kept me focused and on track. Now, you know, people look at me and they think, oh, she's super confident and she's got a life together and a shit together and blah, 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 blah. That's not true. Like nobody can say that. We are all, you know, as humans, we love to get distracted. We love to go on track because something else new and shiny comes along and we run down that path. It's normal, right? So for me, it's around if I wake up every morning and I look at a list of things that I want to achieve this year and it's, you know, front of mind, then I'm more likely to achieve some of it or all of it than if I just do a list at the start of the year, put it in my bottom drawer and never look at it again. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when we speak about women in leadership, and if I think for an example about the McKinsey report, so women in the workplace from 2022, you know, there's some challenging kind of statistics in there around women are leaving the workforce in higher numbers than ever and citing a couple of different reasons, one being kind of stress and burnout and the other one being lack of opportunity. Can I ask you, I know at a point in your career you had a challenge with regards to an autoimmune disorder or something I've heard you speak about. So, and, and you know, you shared at that point in time that potentially one of the causes of that was was stress and overload. Can we just talk about that? Because that's such a real live issue for people right now. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. So I was in an environment that was quite stressful and, you know, I don't, I don't need to go into what that was about, but um, I, I was, you know, having sleepless nights. I wasn't eating. I was, I, my personality had changed. Like, Stress and burnout is a real thing. And when you go through it, you actually realise how debilitating it is because you can't think. You literally can't think. And you go into survival mode because you are driven through fear and fear of the unknown and fear of the next issue that's going to happen that's going to put you back into survival mode again. And it puts enormous stress on your body and you live in that stressful time 24-7. So you're not sleeping, you're not eating, your body is on high alert. So it's like in flight mode constantly. And I probably was was like that for a significant period of time. So we're talking over 12 months. Yeah. And then one day I couldn't get out of bed. Mm. I, you know, I got up, had a shower, I was exhausted I couldn't pick up the hairdryer to dry my hair. 
I had to go and lie down again. And my body just basically was giving up on me. So, you know, long story short, you go to the doctors, you have all the blood tests and things done. And I found out that I was borderline on a whole range of things. You know, the diabetes had kicked in supposedly, and I was a borderline on a whole range of things. And they put me a range of drugs to, to help me. And then those drugs had an impact on me. So my hair started to fall out and my skin started to peel off me. And, you know, like it was just, it went from one extreme to the other. And I'm the sort of person that goes, once I get focused on something, I can get very focused on something. And I kind of went, this is shit. I've got to remove myself from this environment, number one. And I've got to take control of my health again. And so (laughs) I'm going to my doctors. I took myself off all the drugs. I removed myself from my stressful environment and I went on and I changed my lifestyle. I became very healthy. I exercised. I watched what I drank and everything else. Um, and I, um, my life changed, you know, I, um, my blood levels went back to normal. My energy levels went back up, you know, and I, well, the lesson I learned was that if I can take control of the environment that I'm in, where it's causing me distress, then I am more likely to come out of it whole on the other side. And I think the critical thing for women to understand this is you've got to remove yourself from that environment. You've got to be able to say to yourself, this isn't working for me and it may be the best job on the planet and it may be paying you a ton of money, but I've got to get out. And, I mean, got to get out or got to ask for what you need to drive change or you know are there steps along that way uh I think it depends on the environment if if people aren't willing to change the environment for you you've got to get out and in my environment that wasn't going to change my realization was that environment wasn't going to change and I need to get out uh if you have an environment that you can change or can be changed for you that's great But then here's the other thing around women, right? If we go and ask for something to be changed, quite often it works against us because we get told, well, you're not good enough to the job, Uh, you're not putting enough of yourself, you know, what do you mean? The bloke would do it better for you, et cetera. So it's a very hard position for women to be in because sometimes no matter which one you choose, it's not going to work out for you. But you've got to put your health first. Yeah, I mean, this is is fascinating. Um, you know, one of the people in this series that I've interviewed is a professor from Carnegie Mellon who's a co-author in a book called The No Club, which is about putting an end to women's dead-end work. And it talks about the facts, research around the fact that in the workplace, often women uh, end up, and there's a whole lot of contributing factors to this, but end up carrying more of what they call non-promotable work. So they're volunteering to be on committees um there you know all of these different things going on that adds up to I think they measured about 200 extra hours a month's extra work a year over their male colleagues and I just wonder when I say that does any of that resonate for you and did you find yourself doing that stuff on the way through the career or you know what's your perspective on that uh, look, I, I did the hours. Yeah. Now, I mean, I was a single mum, right? So my ex-partner was living in Malaysia. My kids were living with me. And so I had to make sure that I had a balance of being able to be there. And you know, my son was doing HSC, all that sort of stuff, right? Uh, so I had to make sure that I was I had a balance in my life. So I would work from home or I would work after hours or I would work early in the morning or I'd do my work on weekends, et cetera. 
So I did still did the hours, but I was able to balance it. And um, so I, um, my situation is probably a little bit different because I didn't have a partner to support me. No. I had to do it. I had to do the Saturday runs to the sport and, I, and still finish my projects and deliver work on time. Yeah. I didn't have somebody else to out, outsource family life to. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I know one of the things you said to me was you've been quite deliberate though because you've got a lot on your plate, a lot of really good, meaty, sort of juicy stuff on your plate. One of the things you said to me is that you're quite deliberate about how all that fits together though. Yeah, and I I think um, I've learned a long time ago to say no to stuff because it's not easy and I think it's one of the things that we need to learn to do in leadership is because you do need to say no to a lot of things but also say no to stuff that's that's going to eat up your time but not give you the results. So the things you say yes to need to give you the results that you're looking for. And so I I learned that a long time ago. So what I do now is, and again, it's probably my intentional piece that kicks in, when projects come up or opportunities come up, as much as I'd like to say yes to everything, I say yes to the things that are going to fit in together, you know. So uh, the podcast that I do, so I do the two podcasts, but one of them is very much focused around the diversity piece because it's important for me to have a voice in that arena. Mm-hmm. Um, the not-for-profit that I do, that's an important piece because I believe in giving back. I think, you know, we all we all rent this space that we're on, right, in, in, on this planet. We're all here for a short period of time, really, and we all have an opportunity to leave a legacy behind. And so that not-for-profit piece fits in with that part of my life. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a look at all the pieces of my life, they all kind of connect back to my values. And, you know, two of my key values are belonging and making a difference. And so a lot of the things that I choose to do fit in with those value sets of mine. Um, Fantastic to have those as kind of the North Stars to guide you when you make those decisions. And I asked you this question and I'd love us to have this conversation because I think it's a a really important one for the audience. You haven't always shared your story. So how did you, you're very generous with sharing your story and I'm very grateful for that. But how did we, you know, how did you get to that point? Um, So when I won the Victorian Telstra Award, I, people got interested in me, you know, here's this Indian real estate chick who's won this award, what's her story? It took me a long time to step into that space. I I won that award in September of 2013 and it probably wasn't until January the following year that I went, you know what, I'm worthy of this award because for all that period of time I was like, why did I win this? Somebody else should have won it. Am I worthy of it? Are they going to find out I'm a fraud? Which I wasn't, clearly. Um, And so then when I started sharing my story, people were really interested in the migrant story, the fact that I hadn't been to university, the successes I'd had in business, all the things that I was doing. But I think the critical piece for me was that my own people were proud of me, you know, And, and that's a really key thing around this is, when your own community is proud of your achievements and you by default become a role model to them. So if she can do it, I can do it. Mm. I didn't realise how many people I had this impact on. There were so many Indian women out there who saw me as a role model and I had no idea that they were doing that. Mm. I then thought, you know what, sharing my story is important because if it motivates one person to choose something different or to stick at something or to bring all of themselves to the table or to put themselves forward for an award, that's a good thing. 
Absolutely. And I'm sure you had this realisation too. You just made me think it wasn't until I stepped into a CEO role that I had any awareness at all about the role modelling that that provided. Um, Was that obvious? Like did that become obvious to you in the role or was that later down the track? It was probably later down the track and I think the role modelling piece is a bit scary for people. And so I think we ignore it a lot of the time because it's such a responsibility, right? Because when you think about it, if you're role modeling to people around you, whether they're your employees, they're your peers, uh, your community, your society you belong to, the fear is that if I do something wrong, or the perception is if I do something wrong, how will they react to it? Yes. Or if I say something that is controversial, how will they how will they feel or how will they react to it so most of us i believe move away from the role modeling piece because we see it as a massive responsibility i think i've got to a point in my life where i'm comfortable being who i am yes. i'm comfortable doing and saying what i'm doing and i know that at times i'm not going to please everybody and i'm going to rub people up the wrong way but if it's important then it needs to be said and I think you get to a point in life where you kind of go, this is who I am. You know, you, you can't have me as a role model and only have elements that suit you. Absolutely. <laughs> it's all of it or none of it. Yes. So if you don't like elements of me, then I ain't your role model. So um, you said something to me around, you know, getting comfortable with being other and different. Can I just ask you about that in terms of, you know, helping people feel comfortable with that because it's really difficult for people. Mm. So, I mean, I've spent all my life going into boardrooms being the only woman. Yes. I still do that. Yes. <laughs> I still am the only woman around my boardroom table right mm. now and I'm only the only, only woman of colour. I speak at conferences where I'm the only person of colour on stage and, you know, when you look around the audience, there's you know, less than 20 people in the room that, are the, that look like you. So I've grown up really for most of my career being the other in the room and being different. And when that happens to you, let me tell you, you have to dig deep into into the confidence that you have in yourself and who you are to stand there and have the conversation and to share your life and to share your thoughts and your beliefs because it's really easy to judge someone who's in the minority. It's really easy to judge someone to say, well, that was her experience. That's not the norm. Yes. And when people are judging you around that, how do you share your story openly and honestly, right? And I think when people are in a room and they have minorities around them, it is up to those who are in the majority of the room to pay more attention to ask better questions, to make the person who is in the minority feel included. Like I, I've been standing at conferences where, you know, I'm, I'm the only person of colour and they ask me what I do and I say, oh, I'm the CEO of, you know, real estate industry partners or whatever I was at the time. And people are generally surprised that that's what I do. It's like, seriously, come on, you know, don't judge a book by its cover kind of stuff. But these are the experiences that those of us who are in the minority go through every day. Every day we are constantly having to prove ourselves and that's it's not an easy place to come out of. No, and that adds to, you know, I know um, another conversation I had recently where, you know, as a female CEO, often used to getting mistaken for the more junior person in the partnership if you're standing there with a male. So all these different perspectives that um, that go on. How do you 
Um, so our confidence just falters from time to time. So it's life, right? So how do you pick yourself back up to find that confidence? You ring your tribe up and you have a bit of a meltdown about it. You know, I have I have the most amazing bunch of women and men in my life and when I have one of those moments, we ring each other up. We're always there for each other. We ring each other up and we have that conversation around, you know, this was shit and this is what was said and this is what happens and they kind of go, why are you paying attention to that? Yes. You know that you're better than that. Get over it. And that's all you need to hear yes. because we're paying attention to the minority in the room than we are to the majority and, and easy to do. Um, but, yeah, just have a good tribe around you who pull you back up again. So if I can ask you as the sort of self-professed Indian real estate chick, uh, as you described yourself earlier, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Oh, that is such a big question because I know this is what your um your podcast was is really about. And I had a good think about this. And I and um a few years ago I wrote I wrote a lot about this. Um and it, so it's a couple of things around this. So first of all, is this desire for women to be perfect. And we do this from when we are very young. And I always say to women, and I made up this word, unperfect, right? Because I used to forget to pick my kids up from school. I used to forget to, you know, clean the dishwasher and wash the uniforms on the Sunday nights. On Monday morning, we'd have nothing clean in the house. Yes. Pack their lunches, like forget to do the shopping. Like there were so many things that I did as a parent that I reflect on now and I go, yeah, I could have done better. So one of the things I learned around this was stop trying to be perfect and all things to all people yes. because it's impossible to do that, right? So have an agreement with your family around what are the important things you need me to turn up for, you mm -hmm. know? This is mum's schedule. This is your schedule. Mum's doing what she's doing because we want to have the life that we want to have. And it's okay to be selfish in that place right so that to me that's that's the first thing be okay to not be perfect I think the the second part around the brave feminine piece is we've got to have a bucket full of courage because we're constantly having to step into spaces that are not comfortable for us so um being courageous to step into those spaces, to smash down the door and make sure the door is left open for others to follow you, yes. I think is, is a key element for women in any role right now and particularly at the moment. And probably the last piece for me, and this is an interesting one because uh, I've been doing, I've been reading Kirsten Ferguson's book, Head and Heart Leadership, and the curiosity piece yes. is what she talks about in that Head and Heart Leadership piece. And I look at it in my life and I and I think to myself, you know, I got into the spaces I got into because I had the courage and I had the curiosity. And my curiosity was built from if she can do it, I can do it too. Or if he can do it, I can do it too. And so I put myself into positions because that was where the curiosity led me to. And I think if I hadn't done that and if I had been cautious and I had assessed and reviewed and done a risk analysis, I never would be where I am today. There's a, you know, I've sort of put myself in and then worked out how I'm going to do it. How am I going to deliver on what I said that I'm going to be able to do? So they're probably the three things. So being unperfect, being courageous and being curious. I love it. Beautifully unperfect. 
<laughs> um, absolutely love that. So thank you so much for adding your voice to our conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I am absolutely sure everyone else will too. It's been a pleasure having you with me. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second guessing themselves so that they can maximize their influence influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.